Your Majesty, we pray that you will be glorified and that your voice will be heard and that you will speak to us from your heart, not from any eloquence of mine, which is very limited as it is, but that you will touch us with your majesty and your holiness, that we will be servants for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a, a vision of God's greatness, his majesty, his holiness. And the setting of this in Isaiah chapter 6 is in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's the first king in his reign, Isaiah prophesied, according to Isaiah 1.1. And it's also one of the better periods in Judah's history. Uzziah, also known as Azariah, like his father, had acted arrogantly. His, his father had acted arrogantly against a prophet. Uzziah acted arrogantly against the priests and became a leper. But the verdict in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that he did right in the sight of the Lord, except that he didn't remove the high places. So there was compromise on some level, but there was still a very positive verdict compared to the other kings of Judah. His son Jotham is said in 2 Chronicles to be a good king. Ahaz turned out not to be so good, but Hezekiah was a good king. And yet, Chronicles says that there were many compromises among the people. They were good in this generation, but only good compared to other generations and only compared to other nations. Isaiah was called to warn of coming judgment as well as hope because Judah may have been good compared to other nations, but Judah was not good compared to the exalted and holy God. We look at the exalted Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and every detail here underlines the majesty of God. First of all, we see the Lord on a throne, and here he's not called by, by the sacred name, as he is some other places in this very passage, but here he's called Adonai, that is, the Lord, emphasizing that he's, he's the king, as, as it will say again also later in the passage. In contrast to Uzziah, Uzziah the king is dead, but the true and the greatest, the ultimate king, is alive. The text goes on to say in verse 1 that he's high and exalted. Well, this is language that we often find elsewhere in this section of Isaiah. For instance, we, we hear about the loftiness of the proud that's brought down. The loftiness of the proud in Israel will be brought down five times in chapter 2. It says that within, within the span of a paragraph. Chapter 10 and verse 18, the arrogance of, of Assyria will be humbled. He exalts himself, but he will be brought down. Chapter 14 and verse 13, the king of Babylon exalts himself above the stars of heaven, and yet he too will be brought down. There's only one who will be high and lifted up, rightly speaking. And we read about this later in the book of Isaiah using exactly the same wording as here in chapter 6 and verse 1, where he's high and lifted up, high and exalted. In 33.10, God is exalted in judgment. He says, now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And he goes on to say, then you'll see the glorious king. In chapter 57 and verse 15, for this is the message of the high and exalted one who dwells forever, whose name is Holy I dwell in a high and holy place, yet also with one who is broken 
and lowly in spirit. So in other words, before the living God, we are not to be high and lifted up. Recognizing that he's high and lifted up, we are to be lowly and humble ourselves, recognizing that God is so much greater. He goes on to say, to revive the spirit of those who are lowly and to revive the heart of those who are broken. God knows who he is. He doesn't have to associate with the proud to get dignity for himself. As for us, in terms of humbling ourselves, it's not some great strategy that we have to figure out how to humble ourselves. Humility is knowing who we are and knowing who God is. Because in the presence of the exalted and mighty God, what are we? In chapter 52 and verse 13, he uses this language one more time. My servant will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. And so it's not surprising that the Gospel of John applies this multiple times to Jesus, who in this context in Isaiah 52 goes on to say that he's marred and disfigured, sprinkles many nations, and then goes on to say in 53 that he's bruised for our sake. God is high and exalted and so great that just the hem of his robe fills the temple. That again is in verse 1. The hem of his robe, an honorable person couldn't be naked. They, they had to have everything that was supposed to be covered, fully covered, and that included a king with the hem of his, his great robe. But here, the hem of his robe fills the whole temple, and it prefigures what he's going to say in verses 3 and 4, where the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord, and the temple is filled with smoke. Ancient Near Eastern temples were often seen as kind of a microcosm of the entire cosmos. So you had earthly temples symbolizing the heavenly one. The, the Canaanite temple of Baal was modeled after the heavenly house of Baal in Canaanite myth. The Esagila, the temple of Marduk in, in Babylon, was supposed to be modeled after the, the heavenly temple. In, in the case of Egyptian temples, they sometimes would have a, a blue ceiling studded with stars and a vulture god overhead as a way of symbolizing the, the greatness of, of the deity, that the deity rules the cosmos so that the temple was simply a localization of the greater presence of the deity. So this vision with God's hem of his robe filling the temple is actually a vision of the cosmic rule of the mighty God. It goes on to describe his greatness by mentioning the seraphim, which might mean the burning or fiery ones. It may be another description of the cherubim, similar to Ezekiel's description. In ancient Near Eastern art, cherubim were often associated with thrones, which isn't surprising because often in the Old Testament we read about God who is enthroned above the cherubim, as, as with the ark and the tabernacle. Here were these magnificent creatures, and yet before the living God, it says they cover their faces. Their role here is to magnify God, and seeing these magnificent creatures magnifying God invites us, who are far less magnificent in terms that we understand, to magnify God. And we listen to the praise of these seraphim, holy, holy, holy. The repetition is emphatic, driving home the, the central point of this passage, the holiness of God, the awesomeness of God, sacred, unapproachably, infinitely beyond all other categories. There's nothing like him. Or as it says in First Samuel, there's no one holy like the Lord. 
The earth is filled with his glory. In chapter 6, in verse 3, you could speak of royal splendor or glory. Same language, it's used in Esther, it's even used in Matthew chapter 6. But this is beyond that of any mortal king. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. God is, is more magnificent, more awesome than the heavens themselves. We read about this glory in some other passages. For example, in Exodus chapter 40, where Moses could not even enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord filled the tent of meeting. Or in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5, the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, of course, in Hebrew, kabod, glory, is also heaviness. The, the, the presence of the Lord was so heavy in that place that the priests could not even stand before the Lord. It gives us more of a sense, more of an understanding why we will someday need glorified bodies, bodies of glory, to be able to withstand the fullness, the full intensity of the glory of this awesome God. His glory is so awesome that as God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, no one could see his full glory and live. Although we understand in light of the the revelation that we have in Christ in John chapter 1, that this has been revealed in Christ. In fact, in John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18, Jesus is the full revelation of the glory of God. And you go through the Gospel of John and see how that's developed. Ultimately, that glory is manifested especially in the cross. That God declared his character not just in this amazing spectacle, but remember, this is the God who dwells with the lowly and the broken. So that in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustice, in the cross... God shows his power in the midst of human weakness and his wisdom in the midst of of human foolishness. It's especially in the death of Christ that we see God's heart revealed most most clearly. But Numbers 14.21 declares that all the earth will be filled with the Lord's glory. And here Isaiah has a foretaste, a sample of this magnificent glory of the Lord. In verse 4, the temple is filled with smoke. Now, when I first was looking at this, I thought, ah, maybe this is a term for sacrificial smoke coming from the altar of sacrifice, but it's not. Instead, this is a term that was used that probably is recalling the theophany at Sinai, where the mountain quaked and, and smoked because of the glory of the Lord upon the mountain. It's, it's the imagery of a theophany of God revealing his glory. And the temple is filled with smoke like it was filled with the hem of his robe and ultimately the earth being filled with his glory. I have a neighbor who's 95 years old, Anna Gulick, and she has told me some things about the second Asbury revival. She was a teacher, a French teacher at Asbury University when that took place. And I've read other things and seen other things about that revival. And one of the things about that revival was that even, even blocks away from the campus, people would approach with a silent awe because they were just overcome by the majesty and the awesomeness of God. Now, each revival is different. 
God isn't obligated to do things the same way or, or manifest certain characteristics of his, of, his, of his glory the same way every time. So we, we can't make it happen by trying to simulate the effects of it. But my point is simply God's presence is holy. And it's like when he told Moses to take off his sandals because the place was holy. That Often when God manifests his presence in a special way, we're just overcome with his magnificence and his glory. And the point is that we need to turn our attention to the Lord. He's revealed his glory in the cross. He's revealed his glory already. And we start there and seek his face there. Then God can do whatever God wishes to in other ways. But this also confronts us with our own inadequacy. And we come to this in chapter 6 and verse 5, where Ishiyahu, Isaiah says, My lips are unclean. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He was a holy priest, apparently, in the holy temple, among the holy people, in one of the holiest periods in Israel's history. God had consecrated Israel to himself. Exodus 31, 13. I am the Lord your God who sanctifies you. Jeremiah 2.3, written afterwards, Isaiah, Israel was consecrated as holy to the Lord, the beginning of his harvest, like the, the first fruits offering, consecrated to the Lord. He summoned Israel in, in Leviticus 11 and 19 and 20 and 21. He summoned them, be holy as I am holy. Why then was Isaiah saying, that he was unclean, that his lips were too unclean to speak the word of the Lord, that he lived among a people of unclean lips. It wasn't because his people were more unclean than other people's. It wasn't because this was one of the most unclean generations. It wasn't because Isaiah was one of the most unclean people. Sometimes we compare ourselves with others, but Isaiah tells us why he felt unclean. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, The king evokes back in chapter 6 and verse 1. The Lord of hosts evokes what he said back in chapter 6 and verse 3. The reason that Isaiah realizes his lips are unclean is not by comparing himself with others, but in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy. We're all unclean. If we boast, for for those those of you uh, watching who are from this particular community, if we boast, well, we're Asbury, and we are better than some other schools, we are more holy than some other places, we are smarter than some other people, or on whatever other grounds we boast, we're missing what it's really about. It has to go deeper than that, because before God, we're utterly dependent on God. Revivals have often come among students who were hungry for God. The Haystack Prayer Meeting, Williams College in 1806, became a a turning point in the missions movement. The Asbury Revivals are another example of that at Asbury University. Nigeria in the 1960s, many of the the major revival movements that took place happened in the context of, of colleges and universities. But there's another factor that, that pertains to most revivals in history. Most revivals have taken place among the broken, among the lowly, among whom the high and exalted God chooses to dwell. The Wesleyan revivals began in the fields. 
Many of the revivals in the U.S. began in the, on the frontiers. More recently, we can look at the Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905, especially among workers in the mines it started. Uh, Pandita Ramabai's orphanage in India had a mighty outpouring of the spirit in 1905. Azusa Street Revival, 1906, was led by a, a one-eyed African-American holiness preacher who had come from the Jim Crow South. The, the Great Revival in Korea of 1907 came in a period of, of national humiliation. God is often with the broken in a special way. And, and you see that among rural farmers in China in the 1980s. You see it among orphans today in, in Mozambique. We can't just boast of our legacy in past revivals. We need the God of those revivals. And we need that God as much today as they did when those revivals came. We need revival today because we need the God of that revival. It's not the manifestations we look for. It's the God of that revival. What's the solution for Isaiah? It also points to a, a, a more widespread solution. The Lord purifies and qualifies us. Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. A coal from God's altar purifies Isaiah's mouth. His evil doing is removed and forgiven. We don't make ourselves holy. God consecrates us to himself. One draw of Asbury for me early on was the hunger for holiness that was burning in my heart and the, the appreciation for holiness that we have here. Yet the harder that I tried to discipline every thought and every moment from, for the Lord, often the further from his presence that I felt. God blesses the results of our discipline. But we are not God's creator and we don't generate his presence. I should have known that because he converted me from atheism nearly 40 years ago by his presence. It definitely wasn't something I'd earned. It was just God's grace. God seeks us. Uh, that doesn't mean that we just sit around passively. There were some people in the 1700s and early 1800s who just thought, well, we'll just sit around and if God wants to touch us, he'll touch us. Well, apparently he doesn't want to touch us. God wants us to be diligent. He wants us to be disciplined. But that's not what brings his presence. We need to recognize it's not our own effort, but that he's the one who stirs that craving in our hearts for him. And that we, like Isaiah, are responding to his glory. And we, like Isaiah, must depend on his work in us. And if that's what we crave for, then we should ask him for that. And if we ask him for that, we know that he will hear us. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He won't turn away the hungry heart who seeks after him. Now, theologically, God already has consecrated us to himself in Christ. That means that everything we are and everything we have already belongs to God. It's for his purposes. It's for his honor. In principle, that's already affected. In Corinth, of all places, Paul calls the Corinthian believers saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. But you look at the way the Corinthians behaved. They were living short of their birthright in Christ. I want it to be more 
than just in principle, like the Corinthians. I want everything in my heart to honor the Lord. And that's, that's God's gift. It comes from God, but he gives it willingly as we seek him. Um, in, in encounters with this Holy Spirit and in our daily walk with him as well. Years ago, I didn't like the term holiness because to me it connoted some people I, I knew who talked about holiness and to them it often, it often looked like to them it was a matter of wearing their hair up in a bun if they were a woman, if they were a man being clean shaven, sorry about that, uh, not wearing blue jeans, not wearing earrings, whatever. And I, I, I associated holiness with that until one day I was in prayer and I felt like God spoke to me about this and said, holiness, my holiness is like a consuming fire to burn away that which is impure. Holiness is loving me so much that nothing else matters compared to me. And that just sparked a craving in my heart for holiness because I want to love God more than everything else. We are set apart for him, but to, to live that out in our daily lives. Lord, make me into what you want me to be. In verse 8, we see that God not only purified Isaiah, but God sent Isaiah. Sometimes we hear people complain about people seeking God for personal blessings. Well, we've been talking about a personal blessing in a sense. It starts with a personal encounter with God. It starts with, with being renewed personally. But it's, it's more than that. It's like we read in, in Acts 1.8. The power of the Spirit comes on us for mission, to, to, to reach the world with the good news of the love of our God. Holiness is not just what God does in us, but holiness is what God does in us and for us and through us to reach others. It's missional holiness. Our seminary's mission statement is to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world through the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God the Father. But missional holiness has to be more than a motto. It must be a reality. And again, there's, there's an emphasis on that here. But, but we can't just compare ourselves with others. In the presence of the living God, we need the empowerment of his spirit. It can't be by just our standards. It has to be by the Lord's standards. And for that, we need the blessing of the Lord. O oh Lord, give us your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.